morning. We are really good. We are really glad that you're here today. If you're visiting, we are especially glad that you've chosen to come our way. We're always thankful to have visitors with us. It might be the case that you are here today. You're looking for a church home, and we would love to have you consider the work here at Olive Branch. I know that the elders here have met with people in days gone by that have thought about placing membership and have answered any questions they might have, and it might be that you want to meet and talk to them and Talk about how you might be able to contribute to the work here, and I know that they would be more than happy to sit down and discuss that with you. We've had a number of folks that have placed membership with us, and we're glad, we're glad for that. We've got a lot of people that are out of town. It is summertime now, and Jared and Anna, they are, I guess, on the road, and hopefully and prayerfully, they will be back safe and sound next Sunday. At least I think they will, but I uh, hope so. We're going to be looking today at Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 3 and talk about the greatness of God's salvation. We want to think for a moment or two about the greatness of God's salvation. As we look at Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 3, one of the things that is said by the writer to those first century saints in the long ago had to do with the possibility of neglecting their salvation. Many of us have known people that have neglected their physical health. Sometimes people fail to take care of themselves, physically speaking. As a result of that, as they grow older in life, they have a number of health issues. Well, sometimes people take care of themselves physically but sadly, neglect themselves spiritually. And really, when you look at it, scripturally speaking, it's terrible that anyone would neglect their salvation, neglect the spiritual dimension of life. I want to talk for a minute or two about why God's salvation is so great. Because the writer asked the question, how shall we escape? if we neglect so great a salvation. Sometimes maybe we fail to, to realize that God's salvation is great. And there are some reasons why salvation is great. Let me just share with you some reasons why I believe God's salvation is so great. Number one, it's great because of its architect. We talk about the architect of our salvation. That would be God the Father. What you have to understand is that God planned to save mankind. God planned to save man before the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13 at verse 8, the Bible talks about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That has to do with Jesus. And in writing to the saints in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said in the long ago that God chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In other words, before God ever framed the world, the universe as we know it, he had a plan in place to redeem fallen man. Now somebody asked the question, well, why would God have a plan in place before he created man? Well, if you look at the book of Genesis in chapters one and following, you'll find that we have been created in the image of God. 
And one of the things that God did in creating us is that he endowed us with the ability to make choices in life. Sometimes we make good choices, sometimes we make poor choices in life. But the point is, God in his infinite wisdom recognized that man, given the opportunity to make choices in life, would ultimately sin or transgress his will and thus need a redeemer. And so the Bible talks in a very plain and forthright way about how God had this plan in place before the foundation of the world so that we might enjoy the blessings of forgiveness in Christ. Now, let me share with you for just a minute the passion of God for sinful man. We talk about this plan that was in place before time began. You need to understand that the basis upon which this plan was set in motion was the love of God. Over and over again, the Bible speaks of the tremendous love that God has for the crown of his creation. We are the crown of his creation. The Bible talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. In other words, when we look at the world, we see a demonstration of the wisdom and power of Almighty God. And while the world, the universe is beautiful, no doubt, man, that is us, we have been made in the image and the likeness of Almighty God. And we are the crown of his creation. As the crown of his creation, we enjoy the riches of his love. You see, God is a father to the human family. And God wants to be our spiritual father. In other words, God wants us to enjoy a relationship with him. Now the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 at verse 8 that God is love. Do you remember when Jesus conducted his earthly ministry? And how on one occasion he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not the Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. God has loved us and he has demonstrated that love by sending his son to save us. I think about the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5 at verse 8 when he said, God commendeth his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in Ephesians 2 at verse 4 where Paul in the long ago said, but God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. In Revelation chapter 1 at verse 5, the Bible talks about unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. Certainly Jesus loved us, but God the Father loved us. And that's the reason we have this plan in place today. In Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15, following the transgression, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God began unveiling that plan to redeem the crown of his creation. So salvation is great. First of all, because God is the architect. But secondly, let me, let me suggest to you that it's great because of the agent of our salvation. The architect was God the Father. The agent whereby this plan was consummated or executed 
was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, as we think about Jesus' role in our redemption, first of all, you need to understand the promises or the prophecies relative to his coming. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We have the promise given of a seed that would come to bless the human family. And really, in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and going forward, you have a prelude to the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God. Over and over again, the prophets foretell of the coming of the Christ. God, of course, called on a man by the name of Abraham. And it would be through the lineage of Abraham that this Messiah, the promised seed, would emerge. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 at verse 3, In you shall all families of the earth be blessed. That would ultimately find its fulfillment in Jesus, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, where Paul said, If you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses in the long ago spoke to the children of God and talked about how God would raise up a prophet. And he said, God would put his words into his mouth. And he would speak those words. And he would say in the long ago that men and women must hear him. Now if you make the correlation in that scripture to Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, when God the Father spoke from heaven, you'll hear God saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. That prophet was the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus. Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, talks about the fact that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Again, we trace that seed line Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, the family of David. And that seed, would ultimately come to fruition as borne out by Matthew in chapter 1. Isaiah talked about how Jesus would be born of a virgin. In chapter 9, verse 6, he said, He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Chapter 53 depicts the suffering servant, the fact that Jesus would come and bear the sin of many. So over and over again, the prophets foretold of the coming of Christ. So we talk about the, prop, the promises or the prophecies of his coming. But what about the purpose of his coming? Listen, if you would, to what the angel of God said to Joseph. He said that Mary would bring forth a son. He said his name shall be called Jesus, for it is he that shall bear the sins of the people. He shall save people from sin. Jesus said... In Luke chapter 19 at verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Did Jesus understand his mission? Yes, he did. Jesus came to save us. The Lord himself would say in John chapter 15, greater love has no man than this, than a man should lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus came to fulfill the will of Almighty God, his purpose stated over and over again. The Lord would say in John chapter 6, verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus also in the shadow of the cross would talk about executing this will. He said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. 
in John chapter 17. Now as we think about the purpose of Jesus coming, there's some things you need to see. First think about his submission to God. Everything that Jesus did in the realm of redemption was to comply with his Father's will. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 4 verse 34? My work is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus came to submit to God's will. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer quotes the psalmist and he talks about the redemptive work of Jesus. He said, I have come to do your will, O God. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus willingly complied with the will of Almighty God. And then we have the suffering of Jesus. We talk about, we talk about the fact that he was, he was submissive to God. But what about his suffering as God? Did Peter not talk about how Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness? In that same context, Peter said in the long ago that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Go back and read the gospel narratives. And notice, if you would, the immense suffering and torture and shame that Jesus experienced on Calvary for us. Listen to what Peter said again when he talked about how Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. When Jesus suffered on Calvary, he wasn't dying for any sins that he had committed, but rather he was dying for my sins, for your sins. And then I think about his sacrifice as God. When Jesus died on Calvary, Jesus died as God in the flesh. John in chapter 1 talked about the Word, that eternal Logos that had been the one who created the world. That's Jesus. In verse 14, he said, And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He points out that the Word, that eternal Logos, became flesh. Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed himself as God. For whom? For me, for you, for all people. And so when we think about the greatness of God's salvation, we need to understand that Jesus died for us. He went to the cross, suffered immense humiliation, ill treatment, mockeries, and yet did it all for us. There's a third reason why I believe that God's salvation is so great. And that's because of its administrator. When we talk about the administrator of salvation, really we're emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one that inspired men to pen this book that we call the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. And what you have to understand is that everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness has been revealed. That's what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And the reason is so that we might become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
And so it's through the scriptures that we come to understand our place in the human family and what God would have us to do and what God would have us to be. Over and over again, we read about the all-sufficiency of the scriptures. In John chapter 14, verse 26, and really chapters 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John were spoken to the apostles. And Jesus talked about after his death, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would bring all things to their remembrance. He would teach them all things. In chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus would say, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all truth. Everything that we need to know that pertains to life and godliness, it's been revealed. Do you remember when Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation? For holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were born along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed this book that we call Scripture. Now, what's it mean to me? This book tells me, number one, what I need to do to be saved. Of all the things that God could have told us, the most important, what to do to enjoy a relationship with him. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. There's a correlation between salvation and knowing the truth. What is it they did in the first century to become New Testament Christians? Well, they put their faith and trust in Jesus, didn't they? They came to the realization that this is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John chapter 6, when many of the people walked away from Jesus as he announced himself as the bread of life, the Lord asked the question, will you also go away? Peter spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Somebody says, it doesn't matter what you think about Jesus. Jesus said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. In other words, unless you believe that I'm the Son of God, you'll die in your sins. And if you die in your sins, Jesus said, where I am, there you cannot come. And then we are instructed to repent. On Pentecost Day, Peter told those people assembled in the city of Jerusalem to repent. That is to turn away from a life of sin, to give that way of life up. The Bible then says we are to confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart, that Jesus is the Son of God. Just like the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. And then we are buried with Christ in baptism. When we are immersed in water, we then contact the blood of Christ. And sometimes people miss the correlation between baptism and the blood of Christ. Let me ask this question. Where was the blood of Christ shed? Well, the Bible says it was shed in death, John 19, 34. In order for us to procure the benefits of the blood of Christ, we have to go where that blood was shed. And so that's why in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul said, Know ye not that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, when we're baptized into Christ, then we enjoy salvation, Mark 16, 16. We enjoy the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. The washing away of sins, Acts 22, verse 16. The Bible not only tells us what to do to be saved, but it instructs us on how to stay saved. Over and over again, the scriptures encourage us to live a steadfast life in the Lord. If you look at the book of Hebrews, the backdrop 
to that very book is the fact that many Hebrew Christians were going back to Judaism. And so the whole book is emphasizing the superiority of the law of Christ to the law of Moses. And in effect, what the writer is saying is, why would you want to go back to an inferior system? Why would you want to go back to Judaism? And so they were instructed to stay faithful to God. And that's what the Lord wants of us today. Be faithful until death. The promise being the crown of life, Revelation 2 at verse 10. There's a fourth and final reason why I would submit unto you that salvation is so great. It's great because of its availability. When we talk about the availability of salvation, we're talking about mankind, that is, you and me. How do we fit into this thing? Is it not the case that Jesus went to the cross for you personally, for me personally? Sometimes when we look around at, at, at a world filled with some 7 billion souls, we, we feel like we're lost among that maze of people. What you need to understand is that personally speaking, I'm talking about personally speaking, Jesus died for you. Did he die for the world? Yes. Salvation is number one, exclusive. Exclusive in the sense that only those in Christ will be saved. You have to understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man can have access to the Father without going through him. In Acts chapter 4 at verse 12, the writer said in the long ago, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If we're going to be saved, it will be exclusively in Christ. Somebody says that's pretty narrow. Well, it is. But you see, the point is, Jesus died to save us. He is our only redeemer. He is our only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. He's the only one that will give us access to the Father. Salvation is exclusive and inclusive. It's inclusive of all people. In other words, God wants all people to be saved. We talk about the availability of salvation. Salvation is open to all. The doors are open to all. Whether rich or poor, educated, uneducated, black or white, it doesn't matter what your race is, what your nationality is, what your gender is, what your age is, what your background is, you can be saved in Jesus Christ. That ought to be, that ought to be appealing to everybody. Here's what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 4. God would have all men, A-L-L, all men, and the word men employed there denotes both male and female. God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now let me ask you this question in closing today. In light of the fact that God is the architect of salvation, that Jesus is the agent of salvation. That the Holy Spirit is the administrator of salvation. That salvation is available to all. Why would any, anyone 
neglected. I mean, think about that. Why would somebody turn a deaf ear to something that is so great and so good and can be such a blessing? We talk about having a message to share with the world. Do you know a better message than the gospel? Do you know a better message to share with people that can say, look, you may be off track in life. Your life might be upside down. You may be having all kinds of problems and issues and difficulties and trials and tribulations. You may be knee deep in a life of sin, but let me tell you this. The gospel has the power to change your life. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. And you have to understand the Corinthians were knee deep in a life of sin. In chapter 5, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians, Paul said, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you're in Christ, what's in the past is in the past. We're living in the present. And if you are in Christ and you're walking in the light, you have the assurance the blood of Christ is at work in your life and you are heaven bound. You're redeemed. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the one who redeemed us to God. He's the one that's reconciled us to God. That says to us we ought to be living for him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to become a child of God? Do what has been outlined in this study today. Obey the gospel. Live it out every day. Be faithful till death. Have the promise of life eternal. I want to ask you one other question in closing. What, what would be, if I could ask you, what's your ultimate dream in life? What would it be? Just think about that for a minute. If you had one, if you had one dream that could be realized, what would it be? There might be a lot of dreams that we have, a lot of aspirations, a lot of hopes. Let me tell you what, what my dream is. My dream is to one day be in heaven with my family. That's my dream. It can't happen by accident. If, if we're going to be in heaven, we've got to go together. We've got to walk together. I want to ask you as a family, are you heaven bound? as a nucleus, as a mama, as a daddy, as a husband, as a wife, as children? Are you moving towards that heavenly home? Think about it if you would as we stand and sing.